Let us stand together for the reading of God's Word. The title of the sermon today is Flaming Hearts Quenched, the Fall of Ephesus. We're going to camp out a little bit here in chapter 19. I'm going to read from verse 1 through to verse 27. You'll see the focus verses, uh, verse 17 through to verse 20. Brothers and sisters, please listen carefully because this is God's holy and infallible word. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. And finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? So they said, Into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them. And they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about twelve in all. And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. And there were seven sons of Sceva, Jewish chief priest, who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also many of those who had practiced magic brought their books books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word... The Lord grew mightily and prevailed. I'm going to stop there for the sake of time today. Thus ends the reading of God's Word. Amen. 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 Please be seated. So today's sermon will be a bit of a, a flyover and a potpourri of the most obvious landmarks in the life of the church of Ephesus during this 10-year time span. Uh, There's a lot more that could be said, but what we will learn will serve as a very helpful set of examples of what it means to be living in a life where your heart is on fire for Christ compared to a life where your heart and your love for Christ has gone cold. And that's what we're going to look at today. Uh, We'll note a fiery love dwindling to a flickering coal. That's what has happened at Ephesus. And we'll look for clues in the scripture that teach us how this occurred, what this sad, cold-hearted estate looks like, 
and how to return to the glorious heart fire life with God. And a real question that's going to come up is a question of trajectory. Where are you? It's important that each of you, as we're going through this sermon today, ask yourself this penetrating question, this set of penetrating questions. What is the trajectory of my walk with God? Is my warm affection for the Lord growing daily, for God himself? Can we sincerely say to God, with growing fervency day by day, what we heard, what we hear from the psalmist in Psalm 73? We've spoken it together already today. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. Even as we face the impotency of our own hearts and our own strength, with our fast approaching departure from this life, Do we longingly, like the psalmist, cry out to God, My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever? Or do we, brothers and sisters, tolerate discontented hearts of flesh, endlessly desiring many upon this earth beside Christ? Oh, Are we vainly striving in blindness and weakness to obtain satisfying portions for ourselves apart from the Lord? Is your heart's portion food or land or possessions or other people or something else? Oh, dear saints, my brothers and sisters, may we all in this day be granted the true answers to these questions for each of our souls and receive from the Lord His grace and His power to always be daily returning to our first, our chief love. That this would be true of us. Flaming hearts quenched is a good description of the fall of Ephesus. We'll look at the flaming hearts for Christ in Acts and Ephesians and Revelation 2. There's a lot more in the writings uh, to Timothy as well uh, that you can look at to see this pattern played out in the history of this 10-year time frame. Other places in Scripture, especially in Timothy, teach us this. We'll look at the cold-hearted life as well, and it'll be just kind of looking at the other side of the, the fiery heart, the fervent heart for God, looking at those same Scriptures and thinking through Are those things absent from my life? And then we'll see the simple way that the Lord Jesus calls us to repent and return to our first love. We'll see some examples of this in Acts and Ephesians, but the ultimate call is there from Revelation. So first of all, what what are the evidences? What is this heart on fire for God? What happens first? Well, first of all, we are brought in, brothers and sisters, to the fear of God. Acts 19.17a says, This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all. Fear fell on them all. This is the Greek word phobos, which is the root word for phobia. 
and all the various fears and terrors that people can have in this life. It's also used for reverence, but we cannot escape also the fact that we are called to have dread and fear and terror as we consider the wrath of God. And I hope there's questions coming into your mind because we'll get to them. First of all, you and I, we brothers and sisters, are commanded to fear God. And it's the same word, phobos. First Peter 2, 17 says, Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God. Honor the king. Do not be mistaken and think that being brought into the Christian life, that the fullness of this word, to fear God, is not to be a part of your life. Revelation 14, we see this written some ten years after this event here in Ephesus. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. This is for the whole world, for every individual. Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. Trembling before the wrath of God is a part of a healthy Christian life. Brothers and sisters, this fear of God brings blessings. It brings wisdom. It brings obedience. And it brings worship. Psalm 110 verse 10 is one of many verses we could go to to demonstrate this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do His commandments. His praise endures forever. Christians fell down as if dead when they saw the glory of God. There's great misery that comes to those who do not fear God. Psalm 36 puts it this way, an oracle within my heart concerning the transgression of the wicked. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes when he finds out his iniquity and when he hates. The words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. He has ceased to be wise and to do good. He devises wickedness on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not abhor evil. The first deep draft from the fountain of God is a bitter drink for those who come to Christ. And that bitter drink is meant to be a part of our daily experience as Christians. Now, if you're like me, you're thinking, but wait a minute. John told us in chapter 4, there is no fear in love. That perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment and that he who fears has not been made perfect in love. So how are we to understand this? I think we need to look at it this way, brothers and sisters. As Christians, we do not live in the shadow of fear. But rather, we dwell in the safe shade of God's love for us in Christ. So when we are resting in the safe and unshakable abode of God's love, the house of love, in this world... We still should and must as wise Christians tremble in our own souls 
as we observe and consider the storms of his wrath thundering upon the world around us. Shaking. Watching. As he is shaking, which that, that which can be washed away. As we dwell in the house built on Christ that cannot be washed away. This is a house of love that we dwell in, brothers and sisters. A smile where the countenance of God upon us is a smile. But he is the God of justice and wrath as well. And we see it occurring. We perceive it around us. And thus we fear him. We know what we deserve from him. The terror of God's wrath drove even the believers in Ephesus even the believers in Ephesus were impacted by the fear of God. So it shows us that the fear of God has a place, not just a place, but a central place in the life of Christianity, in the life of any individual, of any family, of any church. They fled from every possibility of connection with wrathful items and practices. Jude 22, 23, and on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. What happened next? Well, when God brings any soul to this place, in his grace, he goes on. He shows them the house of love and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. The fear of God alone by itself is the beginning of wisdom. It is not the middle and the end and the totality of wisdom. But there can be no wisdom, no blessings in the Christian life if we depart from it. But we must move from the fear of God, remembering the fear of God, into the house of love. When the Lord God grants by His grace to fear Him, that is, for us to perceive our own wrathful state rightly and to be undone under the prospect of our deserved eternal destruction and the endless suffering associated with it that we have earned and our current complete inability to escape from Him or to stand before him and make any solid defense. When he does this and leaves you undone before him, he goes on with his grace. And he shows this terrified soul and this terrified group of people together, Jesus Christ in his perfect life and his sacrificial death. What happens then? Well, you will flee to him. We will flee to him with utmost relief and with utmost joy. And this experience wherein we have found forgiveness, being cleaned and being made righteous in his presence, being beloved in his presence, experiencing what we were made for, peaceful fellowship and communion with God, eating from the tree of life in his presence together within the certainty of eternal salvation that none can take us out of, something will happen. 
we will worship him. We will adore him. We will proclaim him. We will lift him up. He will be on our tongues. We will not find it easy at all to not speak of him and think of him. He will be magnified in our midst, treasured in our speech, in our writing, in our songs, in our arts, in our stories, everywhere. Jesus will be lifted up. That's what they did. This was the first works that flowed from their first love. We're still just at the first love. But it's starting to flow over into the first works now. Because he was magnified. Our wrath, our wrathful state is magnified. But Jesus is magnified more. We've talked about it. 2 Corinthians 5.14 It is the love of Christ which compels us. Brothers and sisters, if this is not true for you, all of your efforts, all that you're doing will burn up and be left behind, even though the Lord may commend it. As we see He did with these commendable things that were happening at Ephesus when they had grown cold. Look pretty on the outside, but be frozen towards God on the inside. So what happens next? We see widespread gratitude, humility, and honesty. And I'm sure there's more we could find here, but these are obvious. It's widespread, it's gratitude, it's humility, and it's honesty with one another. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Now we can fake this, right? I've seen that happen. But this is not, this is not fake. This is genuine overflow of the fear of God in the love of Christ. So we see this first word, many. It was not just a few, and it is frequently like this in Scripture and throughout history that God doesn't just do this in one heart at a time, leaving them by themselves. But often the Lord God will do this in waves when He brings this type of movement. We need a breakthrough like this, brothers and sisters. In our families, in our church, and in our world. And this is not to say that revival is the only way that God grows His church. But if ever there was a time when we needed revival and reformation, now is the time. Has there been a colder, darker time? Not that I can find. I, I'm, again, it's up for debate, I'm sure. But when we look at the fruits of a cold heart and the appearance of a church guided by cold hearts and a culture captured by the wickedness of it, there's a lot of things to point to in our world today, in our own lives today, in our own marriages, in our own parenting, in our own living as siblings, in our own lives. So as we were talking about this morning, how we deal with the money, the resources that God has given to us. So these people are thankful. 
first thing we see is they were so grateful to God for Christ's deliverance that they came together as a church to praise and worship Him. They had to get together. They had to be together to give praise and thanks to God and magnify His name together before the world. That's why we come together. It's because we're grateful. If you're here for any other reason, you're here for the wrong reason. Next, in their gratitude, they continue to be gripped by the humility that was brought to them by the fear of God. And they, they don't want anything to do with that. And they don't care what people think about them. And they confess their sins to God and to everyone around, and, and they might have even had to pull them off. Pull them, look, you've, okay, that's enough. Let, there's, there's people, there's others who want to come up and confess their sins. Well, you'll get another chance later. Even telling not only the name of the sin, but what websites they visited. They told their deeds to one another, brothers and sisters. Repentance goes deep. And you want those to know that you have harmed, that you harmed them. And you will detail that to them as best as you can. We will detail it together as best as we can. This has occurred in our midst when we get together on Thursday evenings. And we're asking for prayer for one another. We see this happening in our midst. But we need more of it. You see, the fear of God, the love of God has overcome them. The word of God has prevailed. We'll get to that. It has overcome them. We will not be overcomers unless we are overcome by God's word. This is what has happened to them. They've laid aside the worship of their own reputation. They've laid aside everything. They don't know what the future holds after the way they're behaving. They let it all go. For the love of Christ and the fear of God. And there's honesty here. You can't stay in humility without honesty. The facade, the pretense, the hypocrisy of self-righteousness is cast aside. Cheer up, you're a lot worse off than you think you are. And it is good for us to confess our sins one to another. And to do so publicly. And to make that the life, the experiential life of our church. We don't go get in a box with somebody dressed in special robes and whisper alone. Certainly there's private confession that can take place, not speaking against it. But what we see here when the fear of God and the love of God, the love of Christ, being delivered, grips a people, there's gratitude and humility, and there's an honesty that takes place. And it is a shared experience together. We want to share with people. We want to tell them what we've done and that Jesus has forgiven us. We want to testify of His greatness. And that involves confessing our sin.
These were hidden sins. These were things that they were keeping on their shelves. Maybe no one knew they had these magic books. This was not a let's see how it goes, put your toe in the water. This was also a severing consecration. Acts 19.19 Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. Brothers and sisters, we cannot toy with sin. We cannot give occasion for the flesh. We, we cannot do that and be serious about our love for God. These Christians, gripped by the fear of God and the love of Christ, filled with gratitude and humility and honesty, want to leave behind their prior life in totality. They did not want to leave any opportunity for their flesh. This is a severance. This is a permanence in dealing with sin. If your eye causes you to sin, dress it up. If your hand causes you to sin, if your foot leads you into sin, now of course we know that it's not the eye or the hand or the foot that actually causes us to sin. But Jesus is teaching us in those scriptures the necessity of permanence when you make a decision to turn from sin. I heard in a sermon on this text that <clears throat> Cortez burned his ships when he got to the coast of South America. And that other generals have done similar things, burning bridges behind them. There can be no room left to go back. They wanted the, the food and the slavery of Egypt. There was no getting back over the Red Sea. He didn't just open it, he closed it for their good. Let that be so of us, brothers and sisters. Do an inventory of the shelves of your home and of your heart and sever every connection, every way back that you can. You know, in order for them to find these magic books, I imagine they had to do work. It wasn't just like they knew exactly where to go. This was a process they took themselves through. Next. This is sacrificial consecration. We looked at these things last week, I know. These bear repeating. And they counted up the value of them and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. And as we said before, 50,000 days wages destroyed with one glorious bonfire. They treasure Christ. They treasure the eternal soul that God has given to them. More than all the cosmos. What's more valuable, your soul or the entire cosmos? You know the scripture. What does it profit a man if, even though he gains the whole world, the whole cosmos, all the planets, all the stars, everything for his very own, and lose his soul? These Christians get that, and they're living it out. They're demonstrating it. Herein lies the only solution to materialism. <clears throat> so, what's, what are you holding on to that's more valuable than your own soul? What sin are you trifling with 
that you are saying this is more valuable than my own soul. Next. This is warfare consecration as well. This is not pietistic, stand in the background. This is warfare consecration going at the gates of hell. The love of Christ and the fear of God leads to this. They burn their magic books, we're told. This occurs right after significant conquest of demons in the name of Jesus Christ that's taking place. And remember Paul's effortless, <laughs> through Paul, a piece of clothing that he probably didn't even, like, oh, there's another apron. Here, I'll take this one. God shows the effortless nature of the conquest of the demonic realm that he accomplishes through his people of faith. And, and we see in Ephesians 6 that Paul understood the importance of this. And Ephesians was, was written a few years later, okay? And he's writing back to them because he's concerned about them. Of course, First and Second Timothy are written towards the end of his writing career, about a year before the verses to Revelation that we're going to see. That kind of gives you the time frame. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. <clears throat> when we lose this perspective, we start wrestling with men instead of wrestling with demons the way that he calls us to. And there's always a replacement. When the heart grows cold, the things we're supposed to be doing are going to be replaced by things that look good. So we're taken out of the battle and the devil chuckles. Oh, good. Oh, good. They're going to, they're going to go uh, labor with patience and, and fix all their doctrinal problems. And they hate the Nicolaitans, which is good. The devil. Let them. They're of no real threat to me. That may be going a bit far, but you see the point here. If we forget about spiritual warfare, it's a sign that our hearts have grown cold and we've forgotten where the real battle is. Now, there's ways to be involved in spiritual warfare that are arm of the flesh activities. I know that. But the Christian caught up in the fear of God and the love of Christ will understand the necessity of ongoing spiritual warfare. And will study to understand that to live that out. And one thing that we need to recall here is that this occurs in the context of the confession of sin. So the step one, like everything else in the Christian life, is to walk before God in, in uprightness before Him and confess our sins to Him and be forgiven. The life of repentance and faith. <clears throat> Next, this was a public consecration. Not only was it widespread, but it was public they burn their magic books in the sight of all. The fear of God experienced within the love of God drives the saints of Ephesus to demonstrate to their world the glory of God over all things, even their most revered cultural powers. They burn their book, books before the world so that the world, they wanted the world to see in this burning fire, they wanted this fire, this burning fire, to point to Christ being consumed in the fire of God's wrath on the cross. 
It's a public consecration. When's the last time that happened? Where the people of God went and did what they could to confess their sins and to destroy the symbols of cultural power in the eyes of the world, for the eyes of the world to see. I think there will come a time when one example of this is when we beat our swords into plowshares. We have so many idols, so many things that we rely upon for strength, that we idolize. What do we need to do in this regard? They are conquered by the Word of God. This is something that happens as a result of the fear of God in the love of Christ. So the Word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. We see Paul mention it in Acts when he visits with them a, a year or so later. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. So he's meeting with the elders of Ephesus and of Miletus. The last time you'll be with them. I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance amongst all those who are sanctified. So the saints of Ephesus went on from this initial mighty experience of fear, of love, of this wholehearted, comprehensive, public, widespread repentance into this ongoing life conquered by all of God's word. A life, a call to continue in the same way that you began. To continue in the same way that you began. A life of repentance and faith together before the world, treasuring every jot and tittle of God's word together. So we read God's word. We hear God's word because we love Christ. And we want more of Him. I will tell you, this is an experiential thing. You will find yourself reading the Word of God and rejoicing and, 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 and singing and crying because you're finding more of Christ. You're loving Him more. You're knowing Him better. And, and on your tongue will be His Word. And in your home will be His Word. Because you find Him. That's what was happening in Ephesus. That's what had been lost. The leaders need to be faithful. So a church that has people who love Christ will not tolerate unfaithful leaders. Unfaithful leaders are a fruit of cold-hearted congregations. Cold-hearted congregations will tolerate elders that drift into being cold-hearted. They won't have the discernment to see it. So, hearts aflame for Christ, they want faithful leaders whose hearts are aflame for Christ, who will give them Christ over and over again and nothing else. His Word and nothing else over and over again. And whose life is also being transformed by the word of God. 
Paul says this in Acts 20 about this. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So the church, filled with the love of Christ, will insist upon faithful church leaders who do the following things. They fear God in the love of Christ, and they shepherd the church as grateful stewards before Christ who know that they must give an account to Christ for every soul. And these leaders must be deeply aware, living, drawing from Christ's blood sacrifice, knowing that everyone to whom they are speaking is purchased by the blood of Christ and made precious beyond words. Determined on their behalf for the love of Christ to drive out savage wolves from within and without with all vigilance and endurance to the end. This is your job. This is your job as a faithful Christian, wherever you are, whether it's here until you die or in some other local assembly, this is your job. The congregation has the responsibility to make sure that there are leaders like this leading them. And we'll see that the leaders are falling away from this in Revelation 2. Churches that are in the fear of God, living in the fear of God, in the love of Christ, will be content. They will have learned how to be content in all circumstances. We're going to study this year, this con concept this year, brothers and sisters, but it's not ever too early to start Jeremiah Burroughs' work or to read it again. So grateful for this work. Oh, how I wish I had read it before now. I wish I had been in the school of Christ like this more deeply, more fully before now. Acts 20 verse 32 says, So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So Paul knows that all they need is God and his word. He knows they can be content, satisfied, tranquil, at peace, in good times and in bad times, in prosperity of the highest or affliction of the deepest, that God and his word are enough. More, more, more than enough. Saints at Ephesus started and continued initially with a determined daily focus, listen now, upon God himself. His character, his, his being, his, his presence, his power and his promises. Yes, but they started with God. And we'll see that in Revelation, when, the, when we look at this church, they're doing a lot of things based on promises, but they're not doing hardly anything at this point based on his presence and his character and his power and love for him. 
See, this is what happens. We separate the work from the wonder of who He is. That's when we've lost sight of the love. How do we know this? Well, look at their attention to God's Word at the school of Tyrannus for two years. And their desire to receive the entire counsel of God's Word that Paul gave to them. Is that you? Because see, that's what contentment looks like. Contentment in God looks like, give me war of His Word. And a life of study. A life of detailed, continual study of His Word. Content in God and His Word, brothers and sisters. Next, we see these people demonstrated generosity and hospitality. Acts 20, verse 35, Paul says these words to them. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. It seems as though perhaps this was already a bit of a weakness for them. And Paul's need to say this to them is one of the last things that he speaks to them. So the fear of God and the love of Christ was showing up in their generosity and their hospitality, seeking more to give than to receive. In a church that has this kind of fear of God and love for Christ, there will be love for their church leaders and for one another on display. It will be visible. Okay? From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church, and when they had come to him. It's a 35-mile journey, either by sea or by land, without electric cars or toll roads. <laughs> and the ferry boats, ferry boats certainly weren't as fancy as the ones we have now. Do you see the love of this church for Paul? on display there. And then, at the end, 37 and 38 of Acts 20, you've, you've pondered this scene. There they are kneeling. Paul has finished praying. Then they all wept freely. So it started, and they didn't stop it. The dam burst, and it flowed until the lake was empty. This is love, brothers and sisters. It's akin to who cares if I'm humiliated when they came in public and confessed their sin. It, are they ever going to stop crying? They're making fools of themselves. That's how much love is present here. They, don't, don't miss that word freely. They wept freely, brothers and sisters, fully, until they were all done. Have you ever even done that? Have you ever cried until the emotion behind it is gone? Well, praise be to God for a heart that can do that. Because you know many of us, we have spent a life turning that off. I'm not very good at keeping it from turning on, but I sadly turn it off sometimes before I should. Then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him. This is like the best group hug on the beach that has ever, ever happened. They, they had to have, I mean, I don't know, but I think they, maybe if they fell down in the sand, I don't know. This is, they cannot contain their love for one another. 
You know, it should be, we probably could say, greet one another with a holy, crit, holy kiss, right? Because it's in the Bible. But, you know, it's not time for falling down on one another yet because we've got to get to worship. But there should be that urge, that desire when we see each other, that enjoyment of one another's presence, that love for one another, and especially, oh, help me. we come to goodbyes right so they fell on Paul's neck and they kissed him sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke that they would see his face no more and they went with him to the ship who knows how far that was in Ephesians 1 Paul already knows about their love but he talks about it again he says therefore I also after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. I do not cease to give thanks for you making mention of you in my prayers. So when the fear of God is present in the love of Christ and this kind of community is growing and blossoming, there will be a love for the church leaders and a shared love back and forth between the two and a love amongst all the saints that is visible, that is on display that wears out our tear ducts and leads to lots of tissues in laundry. That's not the only way, but that is one sure way, and there's no need for us to turn that off when it's time to cry on each other's neck. Next, we see there will be prayers together, brothers and sisters. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Of course, Paul prays throughout all the book of Ephesians almost. They'll want to be there. They'll want to be praying together. I plead with you in spite of the distance and the difficulty of your life to come together with the people of God when we come together for public prayer. I plead with you. How good it will be for you and for all of our families. I know that we're providentially hindered. I know that. But may that be the only reason any of us don't participate in our times of prayer together. Life in the Holy Spirit is what happens when we stay in the fear of God in the love of Christ. We see this displayed in beauty when John sees the vision in Revelation chapter 2. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. So every church that is a church of the living God is a lampstand. And Jesus, like the priests of old, is constantly tending those churches keeping their fire lit providing the oil and the flame from his own hand the Holy Spirit of God came upon them with tongues of fire and he continues to dwell within us and ignite our hearts to break through the coldness and the ice that is within us and to keep us warm in his presence brothers and sisters we need the flame of God every day. And the Holy Spirit of God will be here 
in our midst daily as we continue to remember what He has done. To repent and live in faith day by day. He will be here in our midst. But the cold-hearted church turns to the arm of the flesh. If they do that long enough, as we will see, the Lord Jesus will grant them the experience of that and take away the lampstand. It is a life of remembrance and repenting and joyful communion with God. And that's why he calls them to do this in their recovery. So when we look at the life of the flaming heart, we also are learning about what repentance looks like when we've walked away from it. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Brothers and sisters, we are to recall daily the fear of God and the forgiveness of God. To remember daily our miserable estate before God saved us. And to remember daily the past joys and tell these stories. The past joys and conquests of God in our lives since He saved us. Jesus magnified in our midst. Listen to the sin that God has conquered in my life lately and tell the story. Listen to how I was mistreating my wife and the deeds that I did and how he forgave me and changed me and look at her glowing face as a result. Tell these stories, brothers and sisters. And don't stop. Don't rest on your laurels and know that it's just the beginning. It's a remembering life. Fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. A repenting life. It says, repent and do the first works. Remembering always leads to doing the first works over and over again. The first works are the works, because they're the chief works, which is what that word means. It means first and chief. So the first works are the best works, which need to be the first, middle, and last works, because they're the chief works. And it's any work that flows from the first love. But there are, there are things that happen first, and that is the fear of God and the love of Christ and the confession of sin and the repentance together and the humility and the gratitude that flows and the honesty that comes into the midst of a people like that. But it will fade if we don't stay in the love of God. Remember, keep yourselves. What are we saying right now during the time of consecration? And we're going to keep saying it over and over again until who knows when. Keep yourselves in the love of God. I don't know a place where it says, keep yourself in the fear of God. We live in the love of God while we still fear God. <clears throat> and there's increasing joyful communion with God and others. We see that in Revelation 2.7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And this is not just about eternal life after glorification. That's the emphasis of this text. But it is also about the eternal life now. Because what is eternal life? To know God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And that starts when? The moment of salvation. So the church at Ephesus knew this at one time, but it had faded. Their joyful communion together as a people had faded. Their fire for God had faded, so their fire for one another had faded. Their coldness towards God had developed, so their coldness towards one another had developed. 
And their experience together in corporate worship and the Lord's Supper together became a ritual instead of a rejoicing celebration together. So what is the cold-hearted life? Well, I hope you'll take time to go back through these things. For the sake of time, I, I don't have time to do it, and I knew I wouldn't. It is a growing absence of all that which accompanies loving Christ, the chief love. And it can be the presence of some and the absence of others. It can be imbalance in these things. But I want you to take the time to consider the marks from today's sermon of the flaming heart, internal and external, which we looked at already, and these had faded for the church at Ephesus. And to ask yourself, where am I? Where is my family? Where is my church? Especially for young marrieds, it's really an important time for you to consider these things. And I mean if you've been married less than 10 or 15 years, you're a young married in my mind. Um, but for us old marrieds too, uh, especially for young marrieds, wow, you know, you can really set a flaming heart life before you when you consider these things and make these things a part of your life and, and not ever have to look back and regret uh, cold-hearted years. Um, may God grant that to you, to all of us. You know, in addition, cold-hearted life, as we see in Revelation, is a vain attempt. There will be vain attempts to replace love with labor. There will be vain attempts to replace love with labor. So when the love of Christ phased... The fear of God will either be ignored or experienced in an unhealthy way. I know your works. This is Jesus. This is essentially John dictating what Jesus said to tell the, the, the presbyter, the moderator of the presbytery. I think that's what it means. The angel of Ephesus, I think, is the moderator of the presbytery there. there there's debate about that. But it's to the church at Ephesus, for sure, from Jesus. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored, labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. On to verse 6. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, if we stop right there, we'd say... That sounds good, right? <clears throat> but it's a leftover. It's, it's a meal that's going bad. It's, it's a dish that's lost its flavor. It's, it's a song that can no longer be sung. It's a, it's a black and white work. The color has faded. It is, it is a flat map with no topography. It is hollow, it is flat, it is empty, it is tasteless, it is unattractive because it is done without love. Good things persist, right? Works, labor, patience, intolerance of evil, just judicial proceedings. You look at the language, they probably had a trial. Perseverance, patience again, they're very patient. And even they're laboring for Christ, we're told. Not growing weary, and they hate evil. Again, wow, that's a good place to start, right? But we will replace the love and worship of Christ himself with attention to the fruits 
of knowing Christ. And this is arm of the flesh living. And it's like the communion bread that they make. That It's just nasty stuff, whatever it even is. And you just kind of crunch into it and it just disappears in your mouth. That's the kind of thing. Like you walk into the midst of those people and you're like, I don't know what's going on here, but I don't want any more of it. We will labor for Christ, but not from love of Christ. And this is the cold-hearted life, and it's hard to spot. It's easier to smell than it is to see. It's easier than it is to, to, to feel the frigid coldness of it than it is to see it with your eyes. You have to go up to the statue and feel it. It is so lifelike before you realize that it's dead. Do you see this? This is what we can do as Christians. <clears throat> There's a drifting that takes place when this is happening. I want to talk about the cold-hearted life and what it looks like. There's a drifting from love that takes place. Paul somehow knew, and we look at the words he writes to the church at Ephesus, there appears to be more of a focus on love than in other epistles to other cities to other churches like he knew that love was a problem for them and that staying grounded in the love of God was going to be difficult for them and so this is a prayer look you know we've been through this repentance as a church but we're really good in the reform world of being at being cold-hearted it's like we've got it down to a science we've perfected it so like I think the, the, the folks at Ephesus were, were a lot like them. You know, love, okay, fine, tears falling on someone's neck, rejoicing in Christ and worshiping Him and having a, a heart on fire for Him. Okay, fine, that's for the poets. I don't want any of that. Just give me the science of theology, please. Because, you know, that's what happens when you live in a magical sorceress world you don't want the maker of truth. You just want to use the truth for your own ends. And that's the origins of the church at Ephesus. These magic incantations. And if they got it just right down to the word, then they would have power. And they really would. That's what magic is about. There is actually a way for humans to make treaties with demons and control them. And it's a swap you cannot, you cannot win. So yeah, I'm comparing the cold reform world to sorcery. I really am. May God deliver us from this. Because we need deliverance, brothers and sisters. I know I do. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Theology is to know God and to love Him. Sorcery stops short of that, truncates it, makes it into knowledge. How's your theology? What's your church background? 
Oh, you're reformed? You're Calvinistic? Dispensational? Pre-mill? Post-mill? What's going on with you? Yeah. How's your ethics? Yeah. You baptized babies? Hmm? Tell me about it. Or do we focus first on the love of Christ and let these other important things flow forth from his word to us as we learn more of him and what's pleasing to him? We want to do these things because of him and how it pleases him. And put a, the smile that he has towards us, we know that we can lift up prayers and actions and put a smile on his face as well. We can please our Lord in how we think and live. I wept for the first time in a long time praying to God that he would bless this sermon to us. So the heart of Paul's prayer is that those at Ephesus who had wept over him, with whom he had wept, would be rooted and grounded in love unto ever-growing knowledge and experience of the love of Christ unto the fullness of God himself. I mean, that seems like a prayer too big to pray. That you would be filled with all the fullness of God. He also ends this epistle to this needy, threatened church with a unique focus upon the love of Christ. I went through all the endings of all of his epistles, and this is only one other that I found where he mentions love in his closing. But listen to this. Peace to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. He needed to say love twice and put in sincerity at the end. We need that. We need double love and sincerity as well. So Paul knew that their only sure hope for future growth and life and what they were dealing with and who they were and their weakness and their needs was love for Christ. Now we can certainly say that this is true for all people, but it is, I believe, especially true for certain kinds of people. And in today's world, I will just call them reformed. Me included in that. The scientific dissection approach to God is wicked and hellish. It is the way the devil approaches God. To own the knowledge for personal growth and satisfaction rather than to worship and adore the God who made us. And marvel that he would give us wits to know him and, and to enjoy him. And, 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 and senses to experience the good things that he's given to us. And friends and family. Brothers and sisters. May God give us reformation in our lives. And in his church. It's like you've got all these tools. These wonderful tools that God has given to us in the reformed world. And we're, we're running around marveling at these tools and hacking away at one another with them instead of climbing the mountain of God into his presence with them like they're designed for use. That's what we, that's what we struggle with. And it leads to all these things being absent in our lives. So what do we need? We need hearts reignited for Christ. Brothers and sisters, take some time, please, to remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. I don't know for sure that all of us have fallen in this way. Nevertheless, the life of remembrance is what keeps you from falling. 
What do we need to remember? Well, we need to remember what God did for us at the beginning of our walk with Him. We need to remember the events in our lives whereby His Spirit came through us and we revealed our love for Him. You need to remember when the fear of God in the love of Christ gripped you and expressed itself in your life. And keep telling those stories and keep having those same experiences day by day as the normative Christian life, which is what comes next, repent. A life of remembrance will be a life of ongoing repentance because you're remembering your repentance and you're repeating it. Stop. Consider in the context of remembering what God did then, how it worked in your life, how you felt, what you thought, what you did, and turn around and return to the love of Christ and leave off the life of the flesh. Do it again tomorrow and the next day. And have people around you because this is a communal activity. This isn't by yourself. And do the first works in the fear of God. Do the first works or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place. That threat is why I put do the first works in the fear of God. We live in the love of God with the fear of God in view. And the threats that are given to us are meant for us as Christians to help us live more and love more the house of love, the house of favor that God has brought us into in Christ. We've already discussed the first works. It's repentance. It's confessing our sins one to another. It is public. It involves honesty and humility and gratitude and all the things that continue to flow from that because ultimately the first works are works that come from our first love. And finally, enjoy communion with God and one another. Continue to enjoy communion with God and one another. When you think of eating from the tree of life, you think you've ever had a fruit that good? You think you're going to like it? You think you're going to want more? You've already eaten of it. And we're going to do it again today. Did you know that our, our Savior in heaven is feeding us his very self? And the fruit of the tree of life is planted in paradise, but we partake now. And we come together and we commune together in his presence. This is a great mystery, not proclaiming some sort of transubstantiation or anything like that. But I don't want you to think that the joy that you feel and the desire that you have to be here with God's people to worship Him, including the Lord's Supper, is anything different than this. This desire to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. All the walls between us and God have been broken down. He has brought us into His presence. You think of Eden and the first two saints, uh, our first parents enjoying fellowship with God unbroken fellowship with God it is ours now 
So remember, repent, do the first works, and continue to enjoy communion with God and one another. And may the Lord ignite our hearts for Him as we do this. May there be no living, uh, no, no uh, statues uh, that are cold in our midst. None of us would be tasteless meals or black and white drawings, but that we would live in the life of love, which is a life of color and flavor and joy and gladness together in His presence. Let us pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we look to You, Lord, and we acknowledge that no matter where we are right now, our hearts need to be more aflame for You. And that uh, our hearts uh, have areas that are cold and perhaps uh, cold altogether towards You right now, Lord. And we look at this church, uh, these fellow brothers and sisters at Ephesus, and we see this uh, painful trajectory uh, that they went through where they lost uh, their first love and they uh, laid aside their love for you, uh, for other things. And uh, Lord, we don't want to be that way. Bless us, we pray, to be filled with your spirit anew again afresh today with hearts aflame for you unto doing the first works, a life of repentance and faith, and joyful communion and service together, all for your glory. In Jesus' name.